Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined in the studio by John Tierney. John's here to discuss his latest feature essay for City Journal, which appeared in our winter 2020 issue. It's called The Perverse Panic Over Plastic. It's a powerful essay that exposes some of the weak thinking behind the campaign to rid us of plastic bags, bottles, and straws. You can find it on the City Journal website, and we'll be sure to link to it in the podcast description. John also has a brand new book out, which we'll talk about toward the end of the interview, called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. That's it for the introduction. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with John Tierney. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me in the studio is John Tierney. You can follow him on Twitter at John Tierney NYC. John is a contributing editor at City Journal. And before joining us, he was a reporter and columnist for the New York Times. He's also a best-selling author. His latest book was just released at the end of the year. It's called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. It's co-authored with Roy Baumeister, and you can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. We'll talk uh, to John briefly about his new book later, but we were eager to get him on the podcast to discuss his latest essay for City Journal, which is in our winter 2020 issue called The Perverse Panic Over Plastic. The essay was just adapted in the Wall Street Journal, so you can check out a shorter version of the piece on their website if you're interested. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Brian. So to start, I want to remind our listeners that you've been studying question of recycling uh, and environmentalism in America for decades now. Back in 1996, the Times published a seminal piece by you on the issue under the provocative headline, Recycling is Garbage. Uh, in recent years, it seems that the campaign against plastics has really grown. So hundreds of cities and, and now I think eight states have passed laws to ban or regulate, you know, regulate single-use plastics, plastic bags, most notably. Uh, New York's ban on plastic bags is set to go into effect very soon on March 1st. But you write in this essay that if we really cared about the environment, we'd throw our plastics into landfills and incinerators rather than recycle them, and that the plastic ban, uh, bag ban in uh, grocery stores and, and other um, retail outlets is, is going to be counterproductive. So what's the logic behind that position? You know, it's very strange. I mean, the plastic panic, as I call it, is really even crazier than recycling. I mean, recycling was, a, was an expensive and time-consuming way to accomplish very little. But the plastic panic is not only a waste of time and money, but it's actually bad for the environment because it increases carbon emissions and it and it actually increases uh, um, ocean pollution too. The logic behind it, they're really, I mean, the basic explanation is that it, is that environment environmentalists for like 50 years just have something against plastic. And they've been looking for one excuse after another to ban it. In the 70s and 80s, they were saying that we're running out of petroleum, so we, we can't use plastic, we have to save it. Then there were things that it was causing litter or you know, clogging uh, storm drains. And lately, the, the excuse has been that it's, it's a way to, to, to reduce carbon emissions 
But if you look at the facts, it's the reverse. You know, well, well, uh, uh, yes, let's stop there for a minute. Why not just shift to, say, cloth bags? Uh, uh, the problem is, is that cloth bags or any kind of reusable bag um, is much thicker. It takes a lot more energy and resources to manufacture those bags, also more energy to ship them because they're a lot heavier. So, you know, the green logic is, well, we'll just keep using these bags over and over again, and that will save it. But in the real world, people do not use their bags that often. People forget them about half the time they go to the supermarket. The typical tote bag is used only about 15 times. And so, and meanwhile, these bags have, have much bigger carbon footprints than those really thin gossamer you know, grocery bags th that we get. And so to offset the initial carbon footprint of a cotton tote bag, you would have to use it 173 times, which nobody does. Uh, to offset, you know, people switch to paper bags. Those things have a carbon footprint that are four times the size of a plastic bag. They also take up 12, more, 12 times more room in the landfill. So basically, by banning the thin plastic bags, people end up using thicker grocery bags. They also, because those single-use plastic bags, they're called that, but people, most people actually reuse them to, uh, uh, to line their trash bins or pick up after their pets. So people do use them more than once. And when you ban them at the grocery store, people end up buying new plastic bags to make up for that, and they buy thicker ones. So again, you're basically increasing the carbon footprint. You're adding more carbon to the atmosphere. It's true. I use my uh, plastic bags for the, the cat litter exactly. uh, to take, take, take out, uh, you know, the, the clean the litter. Do that almost every day. So I would go out and buy plastic bags, I would assume, um, if, if that was not available to me. Right. And you probably would typically buy a thicker plastic bag. Those are the ones that tend to be on sale. Um, the, you know, those grocery bags are so thin. That uh, you know, I mean, they're really marvels of engineering, the fact that you can get something that thin with so little resources in it that, that is so strong and waterproof. But isn't one of the arguments made that they don't really biodegrade and so that they stay in the landfill forever? Well, that's a good thing because, you know, the problem with um, in landfills is not that we don't have enough room for them. I and they take up very little room, but the, the stuff... Um, as it decomposes, it releases greenhouse gases. That's what cotton and paper bags do. Now, they can trap these things, but the fact that it doesn't biodegrade means that nothing in it, the carbon, those bags are basically made of natural gas that came out of the ground. You're putting it back in the ground, so the carbon from there is not going to be, it's not going to escape into the atmosphere. It's not going to pollute the oceans. So, in, in effect, it's a very good way to dispose of it. Turning back to recycling, people listening to the podcast might not have followed this, but there's been a growing logistical problem with uh, recycling um, and what we do with recycled products. Up until fairly recently, American cities were shipping the bulk of their plastic waste to China, uh, where it was supposed to be made into a variety of new goods, shoes, bags, other products. But China has uh, banned that practice. And so n what's happening to the, that waste now? Um, you know, is it, was it even a, a, a good idea to be shipping our waste in this way to China? No, because it's, I mean, it's more, I mean, Why for not one leave thing. leave it in the landfill? Exactly. Right? I mean, for one thing, it's more expensive to have to ship it, you know, all that, for, you know, and cities end up, cities expected to save money on recycling. They thought we're going to have these valuable materials people will buy from us. What they discovered was sorting the stuff and, and, and recycling it is so expensive that you, that and so labor intensive 
that you end up having to pay people to, to take it off your hands, and it's more expensive than it would be to put it in the landfill. And there is just no market in the United States for this stuff. So the only place to send it is, is to places with very low labor costs. As you say, used to be China. Now China closed, closed that off, so people have been shipping it to Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, some other countries. The problem with that, aside from that it costs cities extra to do this, and, and by the way, the more intelligent cities are just have given up and are just starting to, to put the stuff in the landfill. But to the extent they can find anyone to take the, these, the, these bales of plastic recyclables off their hand, they're going to these countries, these developing countries with very low labor costs, but also very primitive waste management systems. And what happens when they get there, you know, uh, there, there have been exposés by journalists and by Greenpeace and other environmentalists, is that the stuff gets, it's, it's what researchers call mismanaged waste. Some of it just gets dumped illegally. Some of it is burned, you know, which is, you know, creates toxic fumes. And a lot of it just ends up leaking one way or another into rivers and into the environment. So it ends up in the ocean. So when you see these pictures of rivers choked with plastic, in a way, that's an outcome of this kind of system? Exactly. I mean, some of that, when you put plastic in the recycling bin, there's a chance that some of that is going to end up in an Asian river and it's going to end up in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You know, uh, we probably heard about that and there was these lamentations that the BBC did a very famous documentary about our throwaway societies being blamed for this garbage in the Pacific Ocean and elsewhere. But when researchers have looked at that garbage, they find in the first place about half of it comes from ships. There's an awful lot of fishing nets and things. And we ought to be trying to stop that by, you know, by enforcing laws against littering in the sea. But the, other, but the rest of it almost all comes from Asia. I'm a little bit from South America and Africa. But it's basically coming from these developing countries that don't have good systems for processing waste. So the best thing you can do if you care about you know, saving flipper and the, and, and the creatures of the sea is put that plastic in the trash so it doesn't get shipped anywhere, so it goes to a landfill or an incinerator instead of ending up in the ocean. One of the very interesting parts of your essay is is speculative, but mm-hmm. it's it's trying to uh, figure out why these these kind of panics take hold about plastic, mm-hmm. um, and in general why there is so much uh, uh, kind of woolly minded thinking about environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something you know you, you've you've written about for a long time. Uh, what what is the upshot of your argument in this piece? Because it's quite fascinating, just for our listeners. Um, well, part of it is uh, I've always thought that, that recycling is a sort of sacrament to uh, to expiate guilt that we feel guilty about being consumers and using all this stuff, and it's that's sort of a rite of atonement. But the plastic thing, there's some of that in it. But I but the closest parallel, I was fascinated to discover. Some research into sumptuary laws in the middle and from the 13th to the 18th centuries, and it was amazing. I mean, just in Europe, you know, these things occurred worldwide, but these were laws that forbade people from using products the same way we're banning plastic grocery bags. And there were thousands of them passed across Europe, and uh, an awful lot of it was by social class. The commoners were not allowed to wear, you know, silk or satin or gold things, that, you know, that someone below the rank of a countess couldn't wear more than one ring. And there were, um, you know, the people couldn't have silk in their curtains. You couldn't have... So- 
you know, have more than two courses at dinner. There were all these laws restricting people's consumption, and they had rationales for this. It was supposed to be saving money, stopping the country from importing goods, but the laws never achieved their stated purpose. And and when scholars who looked at it, they said the real reason these laws went on is that they gave rulers and nobles the sense of power. They they got to um, it it. it it reinforced their social status that we got to tell other people what products they could use. And I, I think that's really what's behind a lot of the plastic. It gives people a feeling of moral superiority, and it, again, allows them to expiate that guilt. So no matter how much fuel that, you know, environmentalists and politicians are burning on their way to vacation homes or climate conferences, they can feel virtuous because they have issued an edict stopping everyone from using plastic grocery bags. I mentioned at the top of the show that you have an exciting new book out. It's called, again, The the Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Um, maybe just uh, for, you know, for our listeners, describe uh, what that uh, book is all about, what the negative negativity effect is, and uh, perhaps that has something to do, too, with uh, plastics. Yes. Uh, 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 the Power of Bad is about the negativity effect, which is the universal tendency of bad events and bad emotions to have more impact than good emotions. Bad is stronger than good. And there's a reason that evolved. It, protect, it kept our ancestors alive by being alert to deadly threats. The problem is, is, is that in today's environment, we're surrounded all the time by people exploiting that negativity bias of ours, trying to scare us all the time. And we don't realize you know, you know how well things are going in the world because we're constantly being surrounded by people trying to scare us. And and also, in the book, we talk about how this negativity bias skews our judgment and our perception and personal relationships and marriages and in school and business and and other kind of things. And in the plastic panic is a great example of what in the book we call the crisis crisis, which is the way the politicians and journalists and activists exploit that negativity bias by hyping this continual series of threats uh, to scare us and and that they typically lead to actions that grow the government and and leave us all worse off because they benefit special interests instead of the public. And the plastic panic is this example where we've, for 50 years now, there have been kind of horror stories about what plastic is doing. And you know, it's this sort of miracle substance that doesn't degrade in the environment, that, that is waterproof, that's light, that's cheap, it, it's, you know, it's healthy and that it, you know, it, it, um, it keeps food, you know, it preserves food, it combats illnesses. But we just had all these people scaring us about it. And, and, and this has been good for environmentalists who are doing fundraising pitches. It's, it's been good for the companies that make these, you know, these reusable tote bags. But it's really not, it's been very inconvenient for the public and bad for the environment. What's the reception to the book been like so far? Um, it's been very encouraging. I, I think people, you know, over and over again, we say, God, I never thought about these things the way, you know, that that, that um, someone compliments you, you know, gives you lots of compliments, but it's only the one little word of criticism that you remember. And I think people don't realize in their relationships how, you know, what really determines the success of a marriage, it isn't the good things you do for the other person. It's, the, it's, how, you, it's how you avoid doing bad stuff and how you deal with negativity and yeah, that's the case in business, and and I think you know you know people were also just surprised in, in this chapter we have on the crisis crisis. If you actually look at how well things are going in the world, 
and how and yet how scared everyone is. The, the the strangest thing is that people in the richest societies in history, where the luckiest people in history, are the most pessimistic about the future, and they have the most distorted view. They don't realize how much how much life is improved for people around the world. And I'm hoping that the book will cheer them up a bit. Well, we need a little bit of cheering <laughs> up with this virus outbreak uh, that's uh, scaring everybody in the world, and maybe. Uh, Maybe this is a real crisis rather than part of the crisis crisis. Um, one aspect of uh, panic these days beyond plastic is uh, our concern about social media. And I'm actually finding very good people to follow on Twitter, um, uh, scientists who are being very responsible mm -hmm. and, and clear in reporting the facts of the viral outbreak and what we should be worried about and what we shouldn't. But there's also a lot of stuff on there that is um, pr probably fear-mongering. Exactly. What's, what's the view of uh, Twitter that you have in the context of the book? Well, I started out thinking, you know, buying the usual line that there's all these Twitter wars and there's so much vitriol on social media. And I was, but I found again that this was a bit of the crisis crisis too, that yes, there, there is some, you know, you know, some awful lot of negativity on social media, especially among, among the political class, the merchants of bad as, as in, you know, people who are alarmists. But the surprising thing to me was that on the whole, social media is much more positive than mass media because the uh, mass media, you know, has got to appeal to these common emotions and fear and disgust and, and these these are very are universal emotions that are easy to appeal to. Positive things are the things that that inspire us: art, culture, history. These tend to be much more niche products that people have their own idiosyncratic likes. In mass media, it's hard to you know to get a mass audience for that. But on social media, you just have all these you know interest groups and and uh, um, th that are pursuing all these positive things. And when you look at what how people behave on social media, they tend to share positive stories more much more than negative stories. And contrary to the some of the alarms you've heard that. Tweeting positively, posting positive stuff actually gets you more followers, and those tweets travel farther than the negative tweets. You know, the, the negative stuff will get retweeted more quickly, and you can get that outrage cycle. But over the long haul, you actually get more followers and, 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 and a better reception on social media by being positive. So I think, you know, what you're doing as far as who to follow, that's what we advise in the book, which is try to go on a low-bad diet. Curate your news feed. Follow people that aren't, you know, just spewing, you know, vitriol every day about the evils of the other side. Try to find people that are, that are sharing some of the good things going on in the world. The book is called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. And John's latest story for City Journal, which we've discussed here, is called The Perverse Panic Over Plastic. Don't forget to check out John Tierney's work on our website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page and the essay in the description. You can follow John on Twitter, at John Tierney NYC. You can also follow City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much, John, for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.